Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, there is a bit of underwear news in the news. Underwear news. Underwear news. Underpants. Yes, uh, I tweeted this out. That the first lingerie line specifically for trans women has hit the market. Yeah, it was a partnership between Cy Laos and Simone Tobias. They launched Chrysalis, and their mission is to provide a solution for trans women and make them feel sexy, but also to change negative views of the transgender community. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They're using all uh, transgender models, and you might think, oh, why why do they need special underwear? So the bras, for instance, come with pockets uh, that allow silicone cups to be inserted, and then also the, the briefs are designed to help lift and tuck genitalia to to smooth out the silhouette and right now they're just starting off with a very basic line but they plan to expand chrysalis to more couture collections sexier uh, broader lines of lingerie yes lacy under things yes so we thought that was pretty cool and also reminded us that hey you know what comes up a lot in our podcast trans issues and you know what we've never done a podcast specifically on transgender yeah Issues. Issues. So it's it's time we talk about it. Yes. Yeah, so here is our transgender 101 primer, because I feel like it is coming up more and more, not just in, you know, kind of side items about lingerie lines, but in news about civil rights, um, employment law. And even in our potty politics episode. Exactly. The, the issue of bathrooms and the awkwardness that can bring, especially in the workplace. Yeah. So um, keeping in mind that March 31st, mark it on your calendars, is International Transgender Visibility Day. Let's go ahead and do our part for transgender visibility, Caroline, and talk about what transgender means. When, when we hear the word transgender, what is that in reference to? Well, the word transgender itself is an umbrella term often used to refer to people whose gender identity differs from their assigned sex at birth. And this is not the only identity, though. These folks could also identify as trans, transsexual, genderqueer, etc. There are a lot of terms that have been coined over the years ever since this was first studied. Yeah, and the Williams Institute at UCLA estimates that there are about 700,000 trans people in the United States, um, and some may pursue hormone therapy or surgery, um, and transgender people may or may not use a different name or pronoun than the one they were assigned at birth. But before we go ahead, let's talk about some words we don't need to use. Right. We don't want to use the word transgendered. Yeah, it sounds like that's something that's being done to someone. Right. Transgender, you can think of as always using it as an adjective. And the whole transgendered thing, I will say we were called out once. We were. No, but I appreciate it. Yeah. That our listeners were, and they weren't mean about it. Nobody was mean about no. it. And we didn't mean to be mean. But we were educated. Exactly. So much education going on. And other terms, transvestite, she-male, 
he, she, tranny, shem. These are all considered to be dehumanizing slurs. Yeah, and since we're talking about etiquette, just briefly, um, Sebastian over at Autostraddle offered some tips for non-trans people who might be curious about trans issues, and there's nothing wrong with being curious and wanting to ask questions, but Sebastian requests, hey, please ask permission to ask questions. This is obviously a sensitive area, um, and don't challenge gender identity by saying stuff like, will you ever grow to average male height? Or don't refer to cisgender or non-transgender as real, like a real woman or real man. Mm -hmm. Um, Before you ask a question, don't forget the magic of Google. There are some things that you can simply search on your own, and that just is part of respecting privacy. And speaking of privacy, uh, one final thing that Sebastian urges is if you want to know about genitalia, ask if it is okay to ask before you ask. Yeah. Try try to put yourself in other people's shoes. And really, about anything in life. Yeah. Just be sensitive. Um, there are a lot of uh, legal issues that trans people face in our country, and, and really all over the world. Um, there are various forms of legal identification, for instance, that have different or strict rules about changing gender that leave little or no option for correct or consistent documentation. I mean, just think about the DMV. I don't want to think about the DMV. Also, most states uh, and countries offer no legal protections as far as housing, employment, and health care go. And speaking of employment, there was a survey that found that more than a quarter of transgender employees had been fired because of this kind of discrimination. Um, transgender people are also more likely to be homeless partially due to these kinds of legal entanglements that will come up. And also, I mean, employment issues. If you are getting fired, then, you know, it can be harder to put a roof over your head. They're also at heightened risk of violence and for mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about um, the basic issues facing transgender people in our country and across the world, we definitely need to talk about the violence and mental health aspects. Um, at least one transgender person is murdered every month. And several more are assaulted. And the same report says that 55% of transgender youth report being physically attacked. And nearly half of young trans people have thought about suicide compared to a fourth who report having made a suicide attempt. Yeah, I mean, the whole violence against trans people um, reminds me of the that incident in 2011. It went viral on the Internet of trans woman uh, Chrissy Lee Polis, who was beaten in a Baltimore County McDonald's just for being transgender. It was horrifying. And the only reason why the pr- charges were even pressed was because someone in the McDonald's filmed it mm-hmm. and then put it on YouTube and it got all of this attention. But otherwise, I mean, when you think about the fact that there's an estimated 700,000 trans people in the United States, that might sound like a large number. But when you compare that to the broader population, mm-hmm. it is such a small minority. And because of its small size has been overshadowed in a lot of ways. And trans visibility is something that is definitely needed to make sure that violations of basic human rights aren't happening. 
Right. Well, so we talked about uh, terms uh, that were coined over time for trans people. But what about the term gender identity disorder? This is something that is actually currently changing. So gender identity disorder is the diagnostic name or has been the diagnostic name for transgender. It's been part of the diagnostic statistical manual. I always trip over that since 1980. And just for reference, homosexuality was removed from the DSM in 1973. So I talked about things are changing with this. Gender identity disorder will not be in the upcoming uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual number 5, which is set to be published in May 2013. It will be replaced by the term gender dysphoria. Yeah, and so what does this change mean? Because um, a lot of people in the mental health community praised the change, also people in the, the trans community, because gender identity disorder, that makes it obviously sound like something wrong, something mm-hmm. bad. Um, and the, the change to the DSM reflects the narrowing of psychiatrists' focus on those who experience personal distress over their gender incongruity, essentially not feeling like you're assigned sex at birth fits your assigned gender, that there is a, you know, there's a mismatch going on there. And Jack Drescher, who is a member of the American Psychological Association group, who is dedicated to considering that name change issue in 2010, said that this recommendation came from a a desire to stop pathologizing all expressions of gender variance just because they weren't common or made someone uncomfortable. So from that perspective, it's great. This is a very good thing that's happening. Yeah. The potential bump in the road, though, comes when we get to insurance. Insurance coverage for hormonal or surgical intervention typically is justified on the grounds that gender identity disorder is just that. It's a disorder. It's a medical problem needing treatment. And back in, this was June 2008, the AMA, the American Medical Association, passed a resolution supporting public and private health insurance coverage for treatment of gender identity disorder, saying that this affirmed the legitimacy of the GID diagnosis and it supported the removal of health insurance discrimination against transgen- transgender people. So there are these worries that once you don't have a quote-unquote disorder, disorder, that you cannot get insurance coverage to pursue the type of therapy or treatment you want. Right. And when we're thinking about medical procedures, uh, people might automatically think of some kind of procedure to alter the genitalia. But uh, there was an article in the New Republic um, that was profiling a transgender woman and she had a face feminization surgery. And the author was talking about how something like that for trans women in particular is even more psychologically mm-hmm. important because obviously, I mean, that's what people see. Right. You know, when you are at the workplace or interacting with your family. Um, and the trans woman is also um, going to weekly voice lessons. Right. To help modulate the, you know, the the, the bass and make it a little more soprano. Right. Because women, I mean, obviously women and men speak differently. And as they point out in the article, there's a difference between just a man speaking in a falsetto voice and a man speaking like a woman or learning to speak like a woman does. Right. Because if a trans man is taking testosterone, that testosterone will naturally lower the voice, whereas if a trans woman is taking estrogen, yeah. estrogen does not alter the voice in the same way. Right. So there, there are a whole that that article was actually fascinating. Just talking about not only everything uh, she changed her name to Caroline, actually. So not a, only everything that she had to go through as far as like 
fashion, learning mm-hmm. about how to wear clothes, learning how to apply makeup and do her hair, but also, you know, the more psychologically damaging stuff of like, how do I tell my family? Will my kids still accept me? Right, right. She had two sons and one of which, you know, lived with her and she was terrified that it would just alter that relationship completely. Mm-hmm. But also in regard to that that medical treatment, um, a separate group with the American Psychological Association um, has determined that enough empirical and clinical data exists to justify creating a standard set of practical guidelines for treatment. And that will probably help with those insurance issues that we talked about. So, yeah, speaking uh, on clinical terms, this is coming from the National Institutes of Health, writing about gender identity disorder in particular. And there are, are signs. There are things that people go through, whether they are children or grown-ups. And they write that children who are diagnosed with gender identity disorder are disgusted by their own genitals, are rejected by their peers, believe they'll grow up to be the opposite sex, or say they want to be the opposite sex. Now, things that apply to both children and adults, just that feeling alone, depressed, or anxious, um, cross-dressing, showing habits typical of the opposite sex, and withdrawing from social interaction, that whole feeling of, well, I'm, I'm just different and no one will accept me. Right. And this isn't, you know, a thing where, you know, oh, a kid's just going to grow out of it. Oh, mm-hmm. he wants to put on a skirt. Okay. Well, you know what? Once, once he grows up, he'll be fine. No, no, no. Those, those feelings of not rightness, that feeling right in your own body only mm-hmm. intensifies into adulthood. Um, you know, where it leads to more experimentation of actually, you know, dressing like the opposite sex or, you know, w- strongly wanting to live as the opposite sex. Right. And so they talk about at the doctor basically what happens when it's not just a phase that a kid is going through wanting to wear the opposite gender's clothes. Um, the feeling of being in the wrong body, uh, it has to last for at least two years for the diagnosis to be made. Although, you know, now that this is changing in May of this year, you know, these, these guidelines will shift also. But at the doctor, uh, the doctor will take a history and psychiatric evaluation to confirm the constant desire over time to be the opposite sex. Yeah, and the good thing is is that there, especially for these childhood issues, is that um, transgender children are becoming a more visible in society. I remember hearing uh, a This American Life story about this over a year ago or so, and there have been, you know, cover stories in New York Times Magazine and uh, articles, a lot more attention being paid to this, which is good because it means that the right kind of attention can be paid from early childhood so that you don't end up as an adult having to radically alter your entire life and possibly dealing with long-term depression and confusion and social alienation. Right. Well, um, you know, we mentioned a, a bit ago that this is this is not a new transgender people in the world are it's not a new phenomenon. No. No, this the whole concept goes back and it's not just a western concept either. There's the Hijra from India, the Faafafin from Polynesia, ladyboys and tomboys in Thailand and the Takatapui of New Zealand. 
Yeah, and those are all just different terms for what we now in the United States have with uh, transgender people. And just for a bit of a historical timeline, this is coming from The Guardian. In 1552, the word androgyny was coined, but it's only been in the past decade or so that people have used it to describe a state of being in between genders. And that's not, though, to be confused, androgyny, not to be confused with intersex which is the, the medical term of when someone is born with both sets of genitalia. The term transvestite has an interesting history. It was coined in 1910 and originated from German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld, who went on to develop the Berlin Institute, where the first sex reassignment operations took place. And we, we mentioned other terms, so here's a timeline. Very interesting. Transsexual was coined in 1949, transgender in 1971, trans in 1996, and the term polygender, which is a little different, uh, was a term also in the 1990s. It's the state of being multiple genders. Now, even though we've had language around transgender issues for a long time, um, unfortunately and not surprisingly, the discrimination has an equally long history. In 1870, one of the first public trials for quote-unquote transvestite behavior happened in the UK, and it was prosecuting Ernest Bolton, a.k.a. Stella, and Fred Park, a.k.a. Fanny, who were arrested for indecent behavior, and they were prosecuted based on transvesticism and soliciting of men as women, and they were acquitted of the charge of conspiracy and to commit a felony by cross-dressing, and I want to say it was either on BuzzFeed or FlavorWire recently that had uh, photos of Stella and Fanny. Well, yeah, and Bolton, the Bolton and Park Society is one of the largest organizations for trans people, which I had never heard of. And then in 1885, just to continue on, down our road of bigotry, the UK made homosexual behavior illegal. Yeah, and this is around this time that sexology, we talked about uh, Magnus Hirschfeld being a sexologist, sexology was established when trans people sought out doctors who could cure them. Because if you're just living your life, you know, you might not necessarily think, I need treatment. Right. However, if suddenly the way you are is illegal, people are going to start to seek cures so that they're not persecuted. So the work of Hirschfeld and of Richard von Kraft Ebbing, a psychiatry professor, led to transsexuality becoming a recognized phenomenon, and this brought it to the forefront. It's available for study, discussion, and treatment at this point. Yeah, and um, because of Hirschfeld's uh, research into that, in the 1920s and 30s at Hirschfeld's clinic, we have the first sex change operations being performed by Dr. Felix Abraham, and those were a mastectomy on a transgender man in 1926, a penectomy on his domestic servant Dora in 1930, and a vaginoplasty on the Danish pla- painter Lily Elb in 19. 19- 31. But Elb did die less than two years later from complications. Yeah. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, Michael Dillon, who was born Laura, obtained gen- uh, gender reassignment treatment during the war. In the late 1940s, he had a penis constructed by plastic surgeon Sir Harold Gillies. Uh, he actually was tra- trained and worked as a ship's doctor until being outed by the Sunday Express in 1958. He eventually moved to India became a Buddhist monk and a writer. I mean, that must have been uh, quite a groundbreaking surgery at the time in the late 1940s to get a penis construction, because that's something that even now 
is, uh, you know, very difficult surgery to, um, to perform. Now, in 1952, we have Christine Jorgensen, who is a former American GI who returned from Denmark, where she had undergone the first of several operations. And over on our Tumblr, a while ago, I posted a video interview with Jorgensen, who really became the public face, a celebrated face of transgender people, because when she came home when she came back to the States. She got a ton of press coverage. People were fascinated by Jorgensen. Yeah, well, this had, I think, a great effect as far as the transgender community goes because her, once she, she was in the news, she became this news sensation of this, this tall, blonde, all-American woman. Her Danish psychiatrist started receiving letters from people all over the world who were going through similar things. And it became clear to medical professionals around this time that this this wasn't just a few rare cases of people experiencing this. This was something much bigger. Yeah, and that's and it's such a, a prime example of the importance of visibility. Right. That once you see someone who's going through the same thing, you're saying, oh, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. Okay. Um, now, endocrinologist Harry Benjamin set up a clinical practice in New York, then San Francisco. Um, he trained psychiatrists and psychotherapists to deal with trans issues and published the first major textbook on the subject in 1966. Yeah, and it was the same year that uh, the Compton's riot took place. This was at Gene Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco. So this place was pretty much the only you know, hangout where trans people could gather publicly as they weren't really allowed in gay bars at the time. So one night, a cop attempts to arrest a trans woman here at the cafeteria. She fights back and a riot breaks out, spilling out into the whole neighborhood. And it became one of the first transgender uprisings in the U.S. Yeah, and that preceded the the Stonewall uprisings. Right. Um, now, this, we're talking about 1966. Fast forwarding to today, there's there's been so much more attention and awareness raised about trans issues, a lot more advocacy going on. Um, but it has not been complete smooth sailing for trans rights, um, especially w- coming to heads with some factions of feminism. Right. Some more radical feminists who have said that uh, trans women are essentially violating female bodies. Right, taking them on for themselves. Susan Stryker uh, wrote that feminists of the 1970s were critical of transgender practices, saying that uh, they were personal solutions to the inner experience of distress about experiencing gender-based oppression. And speaking of gender, because obviously this is something that comes up all the time in the podcast and um, in any kind of women's studies or feminism, um, gender, the the idea of gender, the, the terminology, comes up as a result of studies on transgender people. This was coming out of the work of John Money and Joan Hansen and John Hampson on intersexuality um, that led to the introduction of the technical term gender in 1955, just a little fun etymological fact. Yeah, there's this whole this whole new uh, scholarly vocabulary that comes out of the study of not only trans issues but gender issues, feminism. One of those words is transfeminism, uh, where liberation is viewed to be intrinsically linked to the liberation of all women, and often we see sexism and transphobia blended together, as we did with that woman who was beat up in the fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Emmy Koyama writes that trans feminism stands up for all women and asks non, non-trans women to stand up for trans women in return. And one of the big names that has come out in more recent years in terms of commentary on sort of bridging the former divides between um, some factions of feminism and trans issues is Julia Serrano, who wrote the book Whipping Girl. And Serrano differentiates between traditional sexism, which she sees as the belief that males and masculinity are superior to females and femininity, and oppositional sexism, which she sees as the belief that male-slash-masculine and female-slash-femininity constitute exclusive categories. And this gets into her argument that biological variants, you know, the male sex, female sex, exists in the same way that we recognize gender variants of the spectrum of the performance of male and female. Yeah, she uses, uh, you know, getting into more vocabulary, she uses the term cissexualism to indicate the privilege of those whose biological and subconscious sex are in alignment. Cisgenderism indicates the assumption that males should be masculine and females should be feminine, which she refers to as a wholly artificial set of gender expressions, writing that it seems incomprehensible that so many women could actively gravitate towards femininity unless there was something about it that resonated with them on a profound level. Yeah, and she came up, uh, Julia Serrano did, in our episode on femphobia, because a lot of this does tie into you know debates over or criticism over why the feminine is often derided as right. weaker and less valuable than the masculine. And it's part of that discussion in which she coined the term transmisogyny for discrimination that targets the perceived femininity of trans women. So when we're talking about femphobia, like we said in that episode, it's not just fear and hatred of women mm-hmm. or pink things, but anything feminine. Yeah. Traditionally feminine. So if you want to, to dig more into the, you know, the scholarly side of trans issues, definitely pick up Julia Serrano's whipping girl. Um, but into more feet on the street stuff that's going on right now to promote trans visibility and equality. There are things going on like DC's transgender and gender identity respect campaign. Yeah, I remember when this hit, advocates have said it's the first government-funded initiative exclusively focused on the betterment of transgender and non-gender conforming people. And all of the posters, they feature different different people, and each one says, please treat me the way that any man, woman, person would want to be treated with courtesy and respect. Yeah, there's also the Trans 100 list, um, which... I think it's coming out in new. March 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's essentially like the power list of uh, trans people. And it was launched by We Happy Trans. And this is how to celebrate trans activists in the U.S. And yeah, the finalists will be published in March. So that's something to look out for as yeah. well. To not only you know, provide visibility, but also give props to folks out there who are fighting the good fight. Yeah, so when we see that list come out in March. We'll be sure to post it for your for your knowledge, for your information. Yeah, because one thing, we went through the timeline, uh, and, but we have not talked about, called out specific trans pioneers. I mean, aside from Christine Jorgensen, um, but there are certainly a lot of them out there. So we'll be sure to promote some of that stuff that's out on the web as well. I highly recommend going to, if you are curious, going to autostraddle.com and just searching transgender. They have a ton of stuff 
on their website as well. And of course, GLAD, we've gotten a lot of information from GLAD, G-L-A-A-D dot org and search um, their archives on transgender stuff as well. And the Williams Institute at UCLA for more legal resources. Yeah, huge, huge amount of, of resources and research. Yeah, and the New Republic article that we referenced talks about how transgender issues really are the civil rights issue, the next big one that's coming up. So something to definitely educate yourself about. So I hope that we've helped educate and... We corrected our use of transgender and not transgendered. So I hope that the person you wrote in is listening because the hat tip is to you and thank you. So to any trans listeners out there, because I know that you are out there because we've heard from you before, let us know your thoughts and everybody else as well. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send them or head over to our Facebook, leave a message there, like us while you're at it. And we've got a couple of letters to share Kristen, we have one here that uh, it's about our OBGYN episode, mm-hmm. going to the Gyno 101, um, but it also relates to what we've talked about today. Indeed it does. This is from Ketch, who writes, I thoroughly enjoyed your podcast on the OBGYN and appreciate the importance of talking about what happens in that office. The medical care of women and gender minorities is often under-discussed and stigmatized. It's very important to shine a light on. My only disappointment was in the oversight on your discussion of the gynecologist as some place only women identified folks would go. As a happily female assigned gent and trans feminist, it seemed important to note that many transgender gentlemen, gender nonconforming and intersexed people may or do use this doctor. Just a friendly reminder that trans people have medical needs too and the medical care of the female reproductive system slash vagina slash private biz does not always mean the patient identifies as a lady or woman. So thank you very much for your perspective, Ketch. Yeah, thank you, Ketch. Um, and I've got one here from Kara on some differences she's noticed between men's and women's health magazines. She is a bit of an exercise enthusiast and a runner, and she says women's magazines, such as women's health and women's running, typically take the stance of exercise as a means to achieving a certain body type or losing weight. I find this contrast especially noticeable between women's running, which will have articles on how to keep your skin clear even after sweating, or how running gives you a cute butt, while their parent magazine, Runner's World, will focus on how to get a faster mile and achieve a new distance or run a faster race. I've always been frustrated by the perception that all women care about is their appearance and God forbid a woman work out to look stronger, faster, or feel better emotionally. No, obviously she just wants to fit into that new dress and look good naked. As somebody who loves athletics for myriad reasons, I wish fitness magazines that are targeted at women would highlight the benefits of fitness and athletics that aren't purely superficial. I, for one, am really excited about the strong is sexy trend that seems to be entering women's fitness, even if it is based somewhat on an idealized physical attribute. At least it's better than the malnourished is sexy that seems so prevalent in the last few years with all the praise of the size zero and double zero. So thanks, Kara and Ketch, and to everyone who's written into MomStuffAtDiscovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, follow us on Tumblr as well at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And if you would like to know more about human sexuality, go get smarter at our website, It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 